Welcome to the Drive In Me podcast, brought to you by Toyota Jamaica, now leasing directly to your business, tailoring lease and lease to own options with island wide maintenance. More on that later in the episode. The Drive In Me series will feature interviews with some of the brightest minds in business in Jamaica, curating insights and learnings from leading business people and sharing firsthand the fundamental rules of business that have guided them on the road to progress. In the first episode, we meet Mr. Howard Mitchell, a former lawyer, businessman, and past president of the Private Sector Organization of Jamaica. Mr. Mitchell has had a successful career in private enterprise in sectors ranging from food to manufacturing, packaging, and trading. Having studied government and politics at the University of the West Indies, Mr. Mitchell pursued his qualification in law and went on to work successfully as a lawyer with various firms over a number of years. It was a chance encounter with one of his clients that brought him into the world of business, being called upon to turn around the fortunes of a lottery firm that had found itself in distress. The practice of law at the time was was not easy and I, I had, we had really big clients and, and really challenging work. So I did that for 10 years and then through, I guess, um, a stroke of whatever, there was a company in Jamaica which was the first lottery company established in Jamaica. And um, now lottery companies don't lose money, especially in in economically deprived countries. But this one managed to do it. it, was, it, it they really, they put their minds to it. So um, it, was, it was owned and operated by a person who became a strong influence in my life, Howard Hamilton. He was the general manager of Shell and he had established the lottery company along with two Chinese gentlemen um, and they managed to run it into the ground. So as I was then Howard's lawyer, and he was in personal financial difficulties because of, he had put everything into this company. He was about to lose his home. He was, the company was $140 million in debt, which was a lot of money at the time. And he wanted a bailout. He wanted some sort of restructuring. I looked at it, and eventually circumstances moved in a way that we were looking to reconstitute the, bo- reconstitute the board, um, establish profiles of, of, of serious business people as on the board, uh, people who would bring an aura of success to the company, while we went out and looked for financing. And we, we spoke to many business people in Jamaica, many significant people, and all of them said, get out of my office, you're crazy. I'd never have anything to do with these, with you guys and with this lottery company. Eventually, we got a Canadian company um, to finance the debt, right? It was the Canadian, I think they're Canadian Mint, that's the name of the company. Um, and we couldn't find anybody to take on the chairmanship on the board. And one day Hamilton said to me, look, you have to do it. So I left the law practice 
I know knew nothing about business. I'm not even sure if I still know anything about business, but I didn't. And we took over this company that was bankrupt, that had over 200 agents throughout the country that it owed money to. And I negotiated a new game, coming up a new lotto game, and along with a person who, again, has made an impact on my life, who is a, who's a partner at PwC, Leighton McKnight, and a gentleman named Paul Salter, we restructured the company. And that involved my going on the road and talking to the agents and convincing them that they should give me time to pay the debt and come back to the company. Well, there was at least two times when I had to run and leave my car. <laughs> because they were going to cut me to smithereens or beat me up. But eventually we got that done and we turned the company around and um, we sold it for a fair amount of money to a company called GTEC, which then, at that time, and I think still is, was the largest lottery operator in the world. So they paid us good money and everybody went away happy. And I was left there really without a law practice because I'd spent 10 years doing that um, and with this tremendous urge to be a businessman. The practice of law is a, is a, it's a great thing. I love the law and I think I see the attractiveness of the law. But because it was drilled into my head, and, and this is what I'd like to say to young people, do not accept limitations. Understand that if you, if, you, if you want to do something, the fact that your family is a middle class family and they want you to be a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever, does not mean that you have to do that because the important thing is to find something that you want to do, do it well, and figure out a way to make money out of it. Okay, And I think that that came to me late in life. because I was a competent lawyer, but I wasn't happy. I, I wasn't really doing what I wanted to do. And by the way, I wasn't making that kind of money that I wanted to make. Business does that. And, and many of the people that I went to school with and who were perhaps not as academically proficient as I was, they, they didn't become lawyers. They went out and they went and did something on their own. And many of those people nowadays are successful business people in Jamaica and elsewhere in the world. So the, 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 the limitation of not having academic degrees or not having a piece of paper, it's, it's, not, it's not what it's cracked up to be. Okay. Now, I'm not saying that people must drop out of school and go and sell hot beer and drugs on the corner. I'm saying that do not feel limited by the perspective of this is what you should be. And I've, I've said this to my children. Uh, I think it's important to get a piece of paper from a recognized university because at the end of the day, you can feed your family or feed yourself. But if you're going to be happy and contented, and I hate those words, but if you're going to be satisfied with your life, do what you want to do and do it properly. As my father used to say, don't leave anything on the table when it comes to your development. Howard Mitchell had set his course in business 
and established his leadership mindset of stakeholder capitalism, which he applied in a number of successful ventures, in particular with his friend and business partner, Ray Chan. Following an illness, Mr. Chan passed away, a loss compounded by Howard Mitchell's own diagnosis with cancer. Despite that diagnosis, Mr. Mitchell maintained his focus on business and public service. My children were at that stage largely grown up uh, off at university and I decided along again with Rachel to build and operate a packaging, a cardboard packaging factory, manufacturing, which I had never had any experience with in my life, uh, except if you call aluminum processing manufacturing. <coughs> so I took that on, um, and it was, it was a journey. It, I, I owned that factory. I bought, eventually bought out Ray's share because he had gotten sick, and he eventually died. Um, and I owned that factory for 12 years until I was diagnosed with stage 3 cancer, and I sold it. Um, to a multinational, and I'm still a director of that company. That was in 2016. Um, went off, fought the battle, battle with cancer, and I'm happy to say um, I beat that particular opponent. I remember my oncologist saying to me that if I can, I had a, at the time when I was diagnosed, they say you have a, that he told me that I had a, um, about about a 60% chance of living for the next eight months. Um, yeah, you know, they come up with these numbers. I, I don't know where they get them from. But, um, so he said, if you, if you can turn it around and if you can have no recurrence of it for five years, then something else will kill you. So I'm looking forward to that because I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm almost at the five-year mark and there's no cancer. Um, so I sold the company, spent about a, a year and a half um, fighting cancer, and then having done the chemo and the whole bit, decided to take on some social or, or public service things, ran for the office of president of something called the Private Sector Organization of Jamaica and um, was successful in that and spent two years in that assignment attempting, attempting, and I use the word attempting, attempting to convince my business colleagues of the values of stakeholder capitalism, of full participation in business with civil society. I, I would like to describe myself as a stakeholder capitalist. I, I believe that operating a business, for me, the bottom line is extremely important. Bottom line is the first thing that you have to ensure. <clears throat> but the responsibility to the bottom line must be shared with the responsibility to the other stakeholders in the business, to the employees, to the customers, uh, to the guys who don't even know you, the, the people who supply you with raw material or else you don't run a successful business. You run a profitable business. A successful business is not the same thing as a profitable business. 
I strongly believe that any successful society is built on three elements. The political directorate, the community, right, which comprises the church and, and all the other elements of civil society, and what I call the marketplace, right, commerce. And those pillars hold up that society. Anytime any of those three elements get out of whack, if, if the political directorate gets too powerful, too influential, then you see what, what happens in, 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 in autocratic countries, in, in Latin America, in, in the Eastern European countries, and to some extent in Jamaica. If the, if the civil society gets too overweight, the church moves us in the wrong direction. And similarly, if commerce becomes too strong and dictates all aspects of social life, you see what happens in America, for example, where the profit motive overcomes all other objectives of a functioning society. So, so that's the doctrine that I've been preaching or trying to preach. I also feel that inequality is a fundamental reason why societies fail. Uh, if you have too much inequality, then you're going to have crime, you're going to have unrest, you're going to have dissatisfaction, frustration. Um, so I spent two years talking about that, talking about mindfulness, talking about the need to develop the full potential of human capital. Um, and I, I, I came out of that with, I think, mixed, mixed results because um, on the one hand, I personally have a much better understanding of myself. And I think I've made some friends with people who, who have taught me things and, and who um, understand some of the things I'm, I'm talking about in a much more fundamental and deeper way than I do. With his extensive experience in the worlds of law, business and politics, Howard Mitchell shared with us the values and learnings he took from being immersed in such contrasting careers and ways of life. For the, for the 37 years that I practiced law, I learned how to network, right? Um, it did contribute to my to cirrhosis of my liver to some extent, but I, I, I can impress you. I actually can impress you, right? I can make clients, come, people come to me because they believe that I know what's going on. I, I once had an experience where I did, uh, I was working at the aluminum company and there was a shipwreck. One of the ships coming down to collect the aluminum ran aground and I got involved in a huge marine negligence case which took me to New York to meet with the largest law firm in the world, the head of the largest law firm in the world, Cravath, Swain and Moore. They had like 900 lawyers at the time all over the world and I met with this guy. I don't remember his name but he had one arm. He was a Korean war veteran. Went into his office. His office was bigger than um, a football stadium. You, you couldn't see your feet in the carpet. It was mahogany. It was oak. It was chestnut. 
the guy, you know, the branded decanters on the bar, and we're talking. And the guy says, "Hey, you got you. You know, you're a good lawyer. You're, you're, and but we agree that what we do in law is we sell service and judgment." That's all we do. We sell service and judgment. People come to you because they believe that you know the answer to their, to their problem. So to a certain extent, that involves bullshitting them. Okay? So for 37 years, I not pretend, but I would profile that I knew everything and I could solve all problems. So so after the cancer and, and my partner in, in the business, Brechan, had a great deal to do with Korea was just a very straightforward, simple billionaire. Okay. I'm really sorry that you, you would you don't get to meet him. But he would he would just tell you what it is. Okay. He didn't have a big a jet or a yacht or whatever. But he was the kind of guy that um, his, his school that he went to was in trouble. He would draw a check for $150 million and say, hey. So what I learned after the cancer, when I faced myself um, with my limitations and my defects, and I have a lot of them, is just put it up front. Just, just be honest. It, it, it probably means that I wouldn't have a successful law practice anymore because... At some point in time, I'd be telling people, look, I can't help you, you're screwed. <laughs> but, you know, I don't bother giving me any money. I'm not going to take you money. But it has helped me in my later life. And I think that if I had something to say to a young person, don't leave honesty out of the equation, right? Try and be honest. Be, be honest as you can be. There are times when you have to dissimulate, when you have to fake it. But fake it within an atmosphere of honesty. Know why you're doing it. So that's why that's up there. And quite frankly, I don't need to be impressive anymore. I've had my impressive moments. Okay? Um, and I can be impressive. But it's harder. It's much harder to be honest. Um, as a lawyer, I was never in control. Guy would bring a, a, a problem to me. I'd provide a solution. And he left, and I don't see him again for three months. I don't know what has happened to that problem. Um, you only get a piece of it. When I take on a business, it's mine. The decisions I make have consequences that are mine. Um, and I, I, I can guide it. I can lead it. I, can, I mean, you can't take that home because when you step through the door, your wife says, don't come here with that kind of attitude. Don't come into this house that you're the boss. Right? But business gives me that sense of control. It also gives me that sense of consequence that at the end of the day, what I put in is what I get out. Okay? And, and I don't think there can be any truer sense of satisfaction than knowing <coughs> that you have formulated a thought, worked out the implementation of it, motivated people to work with you on it and come up at the end of the day with an end product that has derived benefit for the people, for the society, and hopefully for you. Okay? That's what business, and that's what I think should be taught in school. Um, you know, not, not 
two plus two or whatever. But how do you function as a as a as a as an entity in the society in a productive way? Uh, and what is are the, what are the things you that you are going to do coming out of your mind, making it with your mind? That's what business gives me the opportunity to do. Make it with my mind. That. That is available to everybody. That's not, that's not something that you have to, you, you have to go to school to get or something that you have to, yeah, you have to have capital, but that's part of the process along the way. The first thing you can do is make it in your mind. One of the other things that, that I have been able to participate in in my life is, is the political process. I've, I've worked with with the major political parties in Jamaica and I've worked with the major political leaders in Jamaica for, for, for maybe three, four decades. Um, I've been an advisor to prime ministers, that kind of thing. So that has given me a perspective um, that is, is extremely valuable because it makes me understand things. What I have come out of all of these things with is an understanding of how things work and how people think, okay? Or don't think. Um, I, I, it's, it's hard to surprise me. It's very hard to surprise me. Um, we have, we have circumstances where people behave in the most antisocial way or or in, in the most um, illogical and irrational way. But I have found that I'm able to understand what is driving that, whether it's personal gain or, or whatever motive. And that makes it so much easier for me to function myself. Because, you know, I can say, well, I, I know where that guy is going, so I won't be there. Okay? That sense of understanding of life and of people is what I have gained most out of my experiences. Howard Mitchell's early exposure to ideas around social consciousness and social justice evolved into a deep-seated sense of the need for greater equality in Jamaican society. Despite his early optimism, Mr. Mitchell feels that Jamaica has missed the opportunity to invest in human capital and achieve its potential. I didn't grow up as a colonialist. I didn't grow up in a, in a society. And, and that's why I was able to, to say to my father that, listen, I'm not going to do law. I don't want to do law. I want to be a vet. And when he, when he said, okay, okay, but let's get you into the academic thing first. Go and do government, go and do something up at the university. I chose to do government and politics. And that was another layer now because I was doing that, uh, having left a Catholic high school, a Jesuit Catholic high school, with all the principles of rebellion and, and, and insurrection that the Jesuits have, the history of disturbing governments in Latin America, of social conscience. I came away from high school with a lot of that. So I got into trouble with the security forces in my first in my year at sixth form because I went and painted up certain slogans which could possibly be described as communist at the time <laughs> on the streets and the walls. And I, 
there was there was quite a um, furor over that. Didn't didn't manage to get arrested and convicted, but it was an exciting time. And then went to the University of the West Indies, which at the time was going through a social ferment, and was, I became part of a, a demonstration against the government censoring certain books and, uh, on black power. And then on top of that, met my wife, who is an American of Jamaican parentage, Jamaican and Canadian parentage, and had gone before coming to the University of the West Indies, had gone to the University of Detroit. Now, you're too young to remember or know about the Black Power years, right? Um, and Angela Davis. Angela Davis was an icon of Black Power because she was a female intellectual. And my wife at the time looked just like Angela Davis. She had a huge afro. Uh, she had the same kind of bad attitude. And... That's what caused the chemistry. So all of that was going on in those years. Okay? And that, you know, they say that every man should be a communist when he's young, but if he's a communist when he's old, he's an idiot. Um, yeah, I, 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 I acknowledge that communism and socialism are perhaps not realistic applications to the real world, but I still have, I will confess, that I still have some thought that there's nothing wrong with saying that we're all born equal. Right? There's nothing wrong with saying that we are all entitled to the same opportunity. Um, and that if that's communism or socialism, then I'm a communist or a socialist, okay? Um, I, I don't think ideologies <coughs> frighten me anymore, okay? So, so that drives my capitalism, by the way. That sense that I'm not better than the other guy. I just have a bit, maybe had a better opportunity or I thought of something for him. Um, that drives me and that drives how I try to deal with people, okay? I despise prejudice and I despise... Uh, structured inequality. I'm not saying that society must be leveled. I, I recognize that there are picking orders and that there are different categories and that you must give people respect in those categories. <clears throat> but I do feel that we fetter our young people unnecessarily by encouraging the limitations of their birth, of their class, of their circumstances. And it is something that is antithetical to my feeling about Jamaica, which was developed during those pe that period of time in my formative years. I felt at that time that Jamaica was a wonderful opportunity for anyone to achieve their ambitions. I am disappointed now because I think in spite of all the rhetoric, in spite of the fair amount of effort and money spent on trying to make this society an equal society, we have failed. And it has, it has affected me deeply in terms of how I feel about Jamaica. Um, I am depressed about the possibility of Jamaica's success 
as a society going into the challenges of the 21st century. I don't think we're ready. I don't think we're ready philosophically. The first element of change is leadership. Okay? Um, so that has to change. The mindset of our leadership has to change to give priority to the human capital in a society. I, when I had the factory, uh, we are going through a very difficult phase because we couldn't get raw material at the time and all. So, so I used to really be working 24 hours at it. And I went down there one, one morning at about 4 o'clock before the, the, the first shift came in. And I'm walking around the factory uh, trying to figure out how to organize better than, than we had. And it struck me that I had these machines there. I had one machine that cost 2.7 million US dollars. And I'm there in the semi-dark at the factory because I had to turn on all the lights. And I'm saying, none of these machines can give me one cardboard box until those people push the door and come in here and put their effort into it. And that, and it sounds simplistic, it's trite, but that brought home to me the value of human capital. Unless we emphasize the development of our people above everything else, Right? We, a society, cannot make it. And I, I give an example. It, yeah, you, you can build a road, right? You can build a school, right? But if you do not have the people's minds prepared, that road and that school will fail. If you develop your people, those people can build the road. Those people can build the school. Right? And I think that that is the fundamental shift that we have to make as a country, that we have to understand that rather than waiting on foreign investors to come down here right, and build all these things for our people to file in through the door tomorrow morning and go and sit behind their desk and, and do the work, what we need to do is to put our people in a condition that all they need is the capital. That all they can say to the investor, listen, I can put up a biochemical plant here to make the components for vaccines because I have the people with the skills. All you need to do is to bring your licenses, your patents, and your, and, and your money. Okay? But we're, what we're faced with now is that in order to, to make that quantum leap that we need to make, Somebody from South Korea is going to have to bring their factory. They're going to have to bring the technology. They're going to have to bring the licenses, the patents, the capital, and the people. Because we don't have the people to do it. Our people can <coughs> um, stand at the manufacturing, the end of the manufacturing line and pack the stuff in the boxes. Right? They can probably do the white-collar work. But they cannot make anything. Because they cannot create anything other than music and good food. And that is a direct function of the neglect that we have paid to them, that they had to find a way to do something with nothing. And that is why, if you know Kingston, if you hit Raytown, Raytown is where the music developed, first of all, that certain kinds of music. Then you come across... <clears throat> through Gold Street, Fleet Street. That's where the culinary arts develop. And then you get to Trenchtown, you really get to hardcore creativity. Not only in music, but in art, in painting, in sculpture. 
This is what happens when our people are deprived of structured opportunities to develop. So that's what I changed. I, I changed the mindset of the leadership. And also, I would change the focus of our, in, our state investment <coughs> to the development of the analytical and, and, and creative and um, education of our people. We're not doing it, and we're not doing it right. If this effort is successful, and I'm speaking to an audience of my Jamaican people, I want to get across the point of view that we, we need to stop typecasting ourselves. We need to understand that by virtue of our cultural and historical experiences. You know, uh, a guy I worked with at Citibank told me one morning when we were smoking weed in the banking hall early in the morning, about 6.30, before going to face the challenges of the 1970s. I'm going to get in trouble for this. Um, <laughs> he told me, he said, Jamaica is has gone through all of the experiences that the world is going to go through. Jamaica is ahead of the rest of the world in terms of its experiences. And we are not, we're not utilizing that. We have this tremendous ability as a country to absorb punishment and come back. We have this tremendous ability as a people to make something out of nothing. And yet, we ignore that and import structures which have no relevance to our success or our ability to achieve it. And that's why I'm not opposed to the International Monetary Fund. I think the International Monetary Fund has helped us tremendously. And by the way, Jamaica is, is probably the, the country that has defaulted the most with the International Monetary Fund simply because we're trying to live up to their strictures, their standards. If they would just give us the ability to flex and to live up to our, to do it our way, which they have now, they now started to do, by the way, the last go round, they have given more flexibility in their, in, in their conditionalities. So that's the message I want to get across to the Jamaican people, that we can do anything as long as we do it in the context of our culture, our history, and honestly, and, and with the best of our enthusiasm. And, and the things that we do, the music, the food, the, 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 the culture, are what we should be concentrating on, not producing bauxite and alumina, Right? Of course you have to produce food to live, but we have certain attributes that we're ignoring. And that's what the message I'd like to get across. Promote your skills, promote what you're good at, do what you're good at, and make money out of it. As he reflects on his life and career, and having recently beaten cancer, Howard Mitchell shared with us what he hopes for his legacy to be. All right, it's a, it's a bit of a struggle. Um, I'm, I'm beginning to understand aging. 
um, and understand that we are physiological people, we're biological creatures, we're animals, there are chemicals that make up our behavior. So the loss of testosterone impacts your drive, okay? You do not have the, the, the urge to win as much as before. And if you are not careful, that can turn into a negative. If you are successful in managing that and getting satisfaction from helping other people to win and from managing what is left of your drive and your enthusiasm for life, in achieving things that give you long-term satisfaction. And that's no, every man seeks immortality. In different ways, right? Uh, statues, um, legacies of institutions, um, whatever, uh, to the mass murderer. That's, it's, it's, he's seeking immortality. He's seeking recognition on immortality. Um, I think that as I get older and I, I, I start, my testosterone levels drop and the chemo didn't help that. Right? Um, but I still get satisfaction out of life and I still um, want to achieve things, but I want to achieve it for a different purpose. I want to achieve it because I want to make an impact. Okay? And I'm not making any excuses about the need for me to want to be remembered. Everybody wants to be remembered. I want to be remembered as somebody who made an impact on other people's lives. I have enough uh, material possessions. I have houses, my children are doing well, um, I have money in the bank. You, you can never have enough money in the bank. There, there's no such thing as too much money. But at the same time, having too much money is not a goal. It's not a, it's a, it's a puerile little kid goal. Something that, that you believe in when you're a teenager, right? What I want to do is to impact lives. No, I'm not gonna tell you that I'm gonna run for prime minister because I want to impact most lives. I want to impact lives in a quality way. And that may involve simply interacting with five young people. And, and seeing the change and, and seeing them become successful. That, to me, that is what I want, I have learned and what I want to get out of the rest of my life. Don't leave anything on the table. Always consider where the other guy is and leave space for him. Other than that, love God and live. <laughs> the Driving Me podcast is brought to you by Toyota Jamaica. Toyota Jamaica now leases directly to your business, tailoring lease and lease to own options with island wide maintenance included. From the RAV4 to the Prado, High Ace to the Hino, you can refresh your fleet with fixed monthly charges in US dollars or Jamaican dollars. For more information on Toyota lease products for your business, call or click today. This podcast is produced by Record Media. Subscribe now to hear the full series.